Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. The church has celebrated the season of Advent by lighting candles that symbolize some of the things most important to us as followers of Jesus. Today, we light the first candle of Advent, the candle of hope. This candle acts as a physical reminder of our hope and expectation in this season. We put our hope in the one to come, the promised one who comes from God to bring good news of salvation. We hope in the one who will lead us to walk in the light of the Lord. On this day, we remember to hopefully look for the coming of Christ. Okay, now we're going to read some scripture from Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Father, during this Advent season where we wait and watch, we pray that, um, that you would draw near to us. Uh, We choose in this moment to focus our attention on hope, the hope that you, Lord Jesus, uh, what you are, your coming represents for the suffering people. Lord, to focus the hope for restoration of all that is broken in the world, the hope of new life and resurrection. Hope is the light we wish to see by as we wait in hope for the Lord. In you, Christ Jesus, all things are made new. And we look forward to the day of our hope is fulfilled, each heart reconciled because of your work completed in all the earth. Our hope, Lord, is in you, in the Lord Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Um, so, if uh, you know me or you uh, have been around here very long, uh, you know that I use the word favorite. I've been told a little too much. Um, I, just, I just have a lot of favorites. I just do. Some would say that I have so many favorite things that I belittle the word favorite. Um, I disagree. It's okay to have multiple favorites. So, uh, but when it comes to uh, Sunday gatherings uh, here at Springbrook uh, today, and then the next four services after this um, are my, are just my favorite. Um, my favorite practices, my uh, favorite songs that we sing, my favorite preaching. Uh, I I love Christmas, but I really, really, really love. Advent. It is my favorite season of the church, uh, at least till Easter, uh, when I start over again with favorites. Um, 
So uh, today, I, th I think we're going to have some fun today. At least I'm going to have some fun today, and you can join alongside me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about history, and then uh, we'll jump into our text today and geek out uh, on words a little bit, which is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, so um, I know our screen froze, so if you want to like pull up, it's Isaiah 9, um, 2 through 7. If you want to have that on your phones or, or wherever you are, uh, it might be uh, fun for you as we geek out into words. But uh, first, a little bit of history. Uh, I, I really uh, just want to talk a little bit about Advent uh, before we jump all the way in. Um, because uh, some of you didn't grow up in church or you didn't grow up in a house or a church uh, where Advent was practiced or celebrated. And so um, I just kind of wanted to get all of us on the same page as we start this season to talk about what the next few weeks will look like uh, here at Springbrook. Um, the word Advent, uh, it comes from the Greek word parousia. And parousia means um, it's like a coming or an, an arrival. It's, it's a showing up. Uh, in the New Testament, the word parousia is used to talk about the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus will arrive again, that he will come again. Uh, and, then in, and so in Advent, we intentionally practice uh, waiting on the celebration of the birth of Jesus as if we believe that Jesus is coming, that he uh, will come. Uh, and so we, we practice the waiting on the baby Jesus, but uh, we also use this time to train and teach ourselves um, how to wait for him to come again. Advent, it's a, se it's a season of waiting. It's a season of hoping, a season of wondering uh, toward the manger and toward uh, the Jesus who will return. Uh, in the church, uh, the practice of Advent is one of our longest traditions. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know this. I thought it was something that uh, we created in my lifetime um, because I think that about most things. But um, it, is, it is ancient. Like some scholars believe that it was uh, started in the 4th century. Uh, others say it wasn't until the 6th century. But we at least know this. We know that in the 6th century, uh, Pope Gregory started uh, setting aside the four masses that led up to Christmas in order to intentionally look to the birth of Christ. And then we have uh, the writings of Charlemagne in the 9th century who tell us that the tradition uh, was still going uh, in the 9th century. Um, and then it's not until the 16th century that the German Lutherans come up uh, with a, an excellent tradition and they bring us a wreath and candles and they bring them into the celebration of Advent. So for at least 1,500 years, uh, the people of God have intentionally set aside time to turn their eyes uh, toward the manger, to turn their eyes toward the coming of the king. For 1,500 years, Advent has been a communal practice for people all over the world. And I think that's amazing. I love things that people have been doing for a very long time. It's one of the reasons I love Advent so much is because it, it's not only a personal journey, but baked into what Advent has been for all of its existence is a communal journey, something that we do together. Uh, Advent, it is absolutely waiting and hoping toward the arrival of Christ in personal and intimate ways. That's why we give you scripture to read every week so that personally and intimately you can wait on Jesus with Jesus. Um, but it is also at its core a practice uh, within community. Advent is just something we do together. Uh, when we sing carols and we light candles and we read scriptures, uh, it does a couple of things. One, it binds us together uh, with the people of God for 1,500 years of history. 
And also, uh, when we do these things in this room, uh, when we sing carols and light candles and read scriptures in this room, when we uh, give to those in need in our community, when we uh, read the readings on the Advent card uh, together during the week, it also binds us alongside one another. It binds us in community as a family, a church family. And, and, and I think the church, uh, one of the things that is best is family. Uh, Advent, it can be uh, practice alone, but in its depths, it is an invitation into community. It is the invitation to practice something uh, together. Advent is us wandering toward Jesus together. And so I think if there's ever uh, a time to commit to going to church four weeks in a row, uh, which I know is tough. It's tough for me, and I get paid to show up four weeks in a row. So if there's ever been a time to commit to coming four weeks in a row, I, I think it's Advent. Uh, I believe there's a lot of value in the practice of waiting on Jesus together. And I'm just excited to do it with you because I really like you. You're the best people. So um, for the next four Sundays... Plus Christmas Eve, uh, we will allow the candles uh, to guide us on our journey. Uh, each candle represents an idea, um, and today that idea is hope. Um, Brian Zahn, who is a, a, a writer about the things of Jesus and a, a wild man, um, he says that if Advent is about anything, it is about learning how to hope. If waiting on Jesus is about anything, it's about learning how to hope. It's about uh, orienting our lives in the direction of hope. Uh, hope, it's a, it's a universal thing, a cognition. I don't, I don't know the right word for it. Hope, it's not quite a feeling. It doesn't really uh, meet the criteria of an emotion, but it's an experience that every single human being has, just a universal uh, thing that we all go through. Hope is, um, it is, it is the structure by which, this is what I read this week and I loved it. It said, um, this is in a psychological magazine, it said, hope is the structure by which we anticipate the future, but at the same time it informs our feelings and our emotions in the present. Hope, it's future-minded, but present-affecting. It's like this both and. Hope is very much a both and state of being. And I think our scripture lesson today that Savannah read so beautifully is full of the both and of hope. Uh, Isaiah wrote the poem that Savannah read, a poem or prayer. I'll probably just call it a poem prayer because it's somewhere in the mix of the two. Um, today, during a, uh, a crazy time for the nation of Israel, Isaiah was a prophet uh, to the nation of Israel uh, a, a whole bunch of years ago, and he writes it during a time of war and strife and turmoil and fear. Um, a little bit of context uh, for our scripture today. When Isaiah is writing, um, the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah, um, has been threatened by a coalition of Syrians. And so uh, Judah has their own king, King Ahaz, and Ahaz flips out when this coalition of Syrians um, threatens them. And he flips out and he gets scared. And so rather than listening to the prophet Isaiah, who tells him to be calm and wait on the Lord, uh, Ahaz instead uh, flips out, gets scared, and he makes a deal with another country, the Assyrians, not the same one, the Assyrians. Um, and so when he makes this deal with the Assyrians, Judah becomes indebted now to the Assyrians because they ask for help. And so instead of uh, getting them out of this trauma and turmoil and, and uh, potential of war, it ends up just causing more threat and more trouble for the nation of Israel. Now two people are uh, displeased with them, or they owe one and one is frustrated. And so it's here uh, in this response that Isaiah writes this poem, that he writes this prayer. It's a poem of hope, quite literally, in the middle of struggle, in the middle of despair, uh, in the middle of trauma. 
And so I want to take just a few minutes, um, if you will, with me and just sort of nerd out on the words uh, to the poem. That's what you do, if you remember in English class, that's what you do with poems. Words matter all the time, but words really matter when it comes uh, to poetry. And I, I just really think that, that it has something for us today. So here's a little English lesson for you. Uh, in English, we have a few uh, verbal categories in our language that communicate tense, right? That communicate time. We have past tense, present tense, and future tense, right? In English, uh, our verbs have the ability uh, to communicate action, but they also have the ability to communicate time. For example, um, if we take uh, decorating a Christmas tree. Some of you uh, have done that for a while. Like uh, 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 past tense, I decorated my Christmas tree on Halloween. <laughs> Heather Lowry. <laughs> okay, past tense, I decorated my, my Christmas tree on Halloween. It's an action and a time, right? Present tense, I am decorating my Christmas tree today. Maybe some of you. Um, future tense, I am going to decorate my Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. I don't know. I don't know. Some of you uh, linger. Future tense, right? Past, present, and future tense. But, uh, so that's English. But in Hebrew, uh, which is the language this poem was written in, in Hebrew, uh, communicating tense doesn't really work the same way. Uh, Hebrew, it doesn't have the same verbal categories that we have in English. Uh, in Hebrew, uh, verbs, they take on the state of action, uh, like our verbs, uh, but they don't really take on the state of time the same way that ours do. Uh, meaning, in Hebrew, verbs don't take on past, present, or future tense. Instead, uh, Hebrew verbs, they take on a form or a state. And so to the best of my understanding of Hebrew, which is minimal, um, but to the best of my understanding of Hebrew, there are two main forms or two main states that a verb can take on. There's the perfect form and the imperfect form. Uh, perfect form is a completed action, like Decorate would mean it's done. I decorated my Christmas tree today. Completed action, right? Um, the, the imperfect form are incomplete actions. My tree isn't yet decorated. So it's that idea. So there's perfect, completed, imperfect, incomplete. These are the states of Jewish uh, verbs. Actions uh, aren't judged by when they happened. Actions are judged by if they happened or if they're going to happen. Are you kind of with me? We're in deep. Okay, we're about to get deeper. So... Am I on the same page a little bit? I need some nods. Okay, okay. Okay, so um, there's also a third state. This is where it gets very tricky. So we have perfect, we have imperfect, and then we have a third state. And um, it's rarely used, but it's a, it's a state of verb that is used in the scriptures very often. And it's something called the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect state. Uh, it is the closest thing Hebrew has to future tense, um, but future tense is like too small of an idea around what these words mean. Uh, this category of language in Hebrew, it's an action of both something that will come in the future and also something completed. Future perfect, pro prophetic perfect is something that will happen, but it's also spoken about as if it's already happened. The prophetic perfect is a verb or a phrase written with absolute certainty of a completed action that will happen in the future. So, back to our poem prayer in Isaiah 9. Uh, the first few verses uh, that Savannah read today, if you look at your text, uh, 2 through 4-ish, uh, they are written in the perfect state. 
the completed state, all of the action words in those first few verses um, are, are things that have happened. Uh, English gets translated a little uh, rocky in that. But there are things that have happened. There are verses of gratitude for what God has done and what God is currently doing in the nation of Israel. When his nation was in despair and longing for peace, Isaiah, uh, his response was to look back in gratitude for what God had done, for what God was doing. Uh, Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness uh, will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Isaiah here, he's saying, we've seen a great light. And we are seeing a great light, and we will continue to see a great light. We have, and we are, and we will continue to walk in this great light. Isaiah, he goes on in verse 3 to remember and rejoice in the God who enlarged and expanded the joy and the rejoicing in Israel. He says, the nation has been and is and will continue to be expanded in our joy. The poem, it begins with perfect verbs, completed verbs, a gratitude for what has been done, a gratitude for what is being done and for what will continue to be done. But there's a turn in this poem around verse 5 that sets us up for verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7 are some of the most famous and significant verses of Scripture ever written ever. Some of the most significant poetry ever written ever. And so in this turn in verse 5, by the time we get to verse 6 and 7, Isaiah is writing in the prophetic perfect. Meaning, by verse 6, Isaiah has started writing with hope. Sure hope. Uh, Verse 6 and 7, they are not Isaiah uh, writing about what he thinks might maybe become true one day, might have a, a chance of becoming true one day. They are verses where Isaiah is writing in confident hope. Confident hope that the promises of God, uh, not that they might be true one day, but that they are already true even though they haven't happened yet. In the name of hope, Isaiah offers his nation uh, a a prophecy, and his words are are perfect state, not imperfect. They are written as completed, not as something that might be completed. About 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah writes not only as if the coming of Christ would be true, he writes as if it's already true. Verse 6. This is why this, if you've heard this verse over time, it sounds like they used the wrong word. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. His rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Cool, huh? For you word geeks. Some of you are like, I don't know. I didn't really follow you. And that's fine. (laughs) For those of you who did, it's cool. Okay, so that is fascinating, I think. It's fascinating. Uh, why, also, why does it matter for us who already know that Jesus was born and that the prophecy of Isaiah comes true? Uh, here's why. Uh, because I think what Isaiah does here is he fights really hard for hope in the middle of some madness in his life. And I think that within the language of this fight for hope, we can find a little bit of a prescription for how to fight for hope ourselves. Isaiah, I think he does it in two ways. He fights for hope in two movements. First, he looks to the perfected, the completed action to what God has already done. He tells his people, let's look back and let's look now at what God has done for us. And so using words and language, Isaiah teaches us that part of hope rests in gratitude. 
It just does. It's true today. Part of hope, it rests in gratitude. It rests in our ability to look back uh, at the light that, at, that was present for the Israelites and is present for us now. That's what he does to them. He says, look back at the light we've seen and the light that we're seeing. It's the gratitude of acknowledging uh, that the light was present and is still present and that it has not and will not go away. And then in the second movement of his poem prayer, uh, Isaiah, he uses word and and language to look forward with an assurance of faith. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about uh, faith in the hope and evidence of things unseen. That's how the writer of Hebrew defines faith. It's it's hope and evidence in things unseen. Uh, Normally, evidence only comes from things that have have happened, not uh, from things that might happen one day. Like future events are not admissible in court. You can't say um, he couldn't have robbed this house because he wants to be president one day and presidents can't rob houses. Right. That's not admissible in court. It doesn't work that way. But in the language of the prophetic perfect, the evidence lies uh, completely in the confident completion of things that cannot be seen. Things that haven't happened yet. For Isaiah, hope doesn't just rest in gratitude, it also rests in faith. Uh, There's a German theologian that I like, another wild man. Um, I always feel like if I give you names, I want to be like, you're not going to agree with everything. But uh, (laughs) So this guy's name is uh, Jürgen Moltmann, and uh, he he writes a lot about hope. And he has a super interesting perspective because uh, he was a German theologian, and during World War II, he was a prisoner of war in World War II. And so uh, I'm super interested in what he has to say about hope. I'm not really uh, super interested in what someone who won the lottery has to say about hope, but I am super interested in what a prisoner of war has to say about hope. And, 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 and one of the things that he says, I love this, he says uh, that one of the jobs of hope is to bring everything into the light of the promises of God. If hope is faith or gratitude and hope is faith, then Jürgen Moltmann says hope is the practice of taking every single thing and putting it in light of the promises of God. This is what Isaiah does uh, through the prophetic complete language. He takes all of the experiences of his people and he holds them up in light of the promises of God. Hope to Isaiah, it's not just a longing for what will be, it's also a trust and an assurance uh, that it will happen. It's a reorientation in the middle of a struggle that God, uh, that what God says is coming true. It is what will be. And that sounds wonderful. Uh, but Isaiah's a poet, and it's also really hard. It's really hard to practice. Uh, I read a story this week um, by a guy named Giles Fraser, uh, who is a priest and a journalist in London. Um, And last December, Giles Fraser's church building collapsed, like the building imploded. It's something I've wondered would happen to us one day in this very old building. Um, It just like imploded. It was a 140-year-old building. It survived bombs during World War II, but it collapsed uh, in 2020 like a lot of things, Um, but it imploded. So um, while watching uh, the demolition of his building, he's like sitting in his office, which didn't collapse. It was the main church hall that collapsed. While watching demolition trucks finish the work of collapse in his building, Father Fraser wrote an article about hope. Again, I am not super interested in an article about hope written by a lottery winner. I am super interested in an article about hope written by a man who watched his church crumble. 
Uh, and, and so, and, and like two weeks before Christmas, it was like double sad, right? Okay, so uh, in the article, Father Fraser, he says that hope came uh, after the middle, or came into the middle of his struggle like a depth charge. That it came into the middle of his struggle like a submarine bomb aimed uh, at the darkness of his soul. And as he looked at his circumstances that were awful, uh, literally as dump trucks carried away the rubble of his beloved uh, parish where he had gone and his family had gone, his family's family had gone, uh, for 120 years, he found himself with this unexplainable gratitude about where he was. And so I want to read a quote from him. It's, it's kind of long, so hang with me, um, where he explains where he is in this process of hope. So he says this. He says, why do I love it here now? Partly because there's so little bull, and then he says bowling word. You can fill in your own blank. Um, partly because there's so little bull. When things have been stripped back this far, there is no room left for pretending. And there is this huge liberation in that. In circumstances like those in my parish, people are thrown back onto the core values of our faith. Love God. Love each other. The beauty of holiness and the need we have for each other. Don't get me wrong. We have failed to realize this vision a lot of the time, but failure presents no block to the persistence of hope. Failure presents no block to the persistence of hope. He goes on, in the Christian story, failure is where hope begins, almost as a prerequisite. This, I take it, is the message of the cross. If, we can find hope, if hope can find its way into a place such as the cross, it can find a place amid the twisted rubble of my life too. If hope survives the cross, it can survive anything. Father Fraser, he writes like the prophet Isaiah with a little bit more colorful language. He writes about hope found in the middle of madness. If hope survives the cross, it can survive anything. Hope, it uh, survives the cross because it dares to hold all things in the light of the promises of God. That's why the cross is hopeful and not despair to us. Because before it, we hold up to that light all of the promises of God. The people who walk in darkness have seen and are seen and will continue to see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone and is shining and will shine forever. Eugene Peterson says that following Jesus means that uh, every single day we put hope on the line. Uh, we don't know one thing about the future, not even the next hour. There could be sickness or world catastrophe or as we've lived for almost two years, both at the same time. Before this day is over, we might have to deal with death or pain or loss or rejection. We do not know what the future holds for us, for those we love, for our nation, or for our world. But every day we persist in the hope that God will accomplish his will and that nothing, nothing separates us from his love. That no circumstances, no darkness, no fear, nothing. We hold all things up to the light of the promises of God who in Jesus has put his love on us. So I just want to pause here instead of finishing. Um, let's sit here. Uh, I, we do something every week. We call it Selah, and it's just a, a moment of reflection. Um, essentially, it's just uh, in the psalm, Selah meant uh, don't move on too quickly from this. Um, and so that's what we do every week. So I just want to sit here uh, with this idea of hope. Um, 
there'll be some verses on the screen that you can follow along with. And I don't want to direct you too much. We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and um, be with us. So let's pray, and then we'll just be quiet for a minute.